This podcast is supported by Americans for Medical Progress and was founded and created through the Michael D. Hare Fellowship, awarded annually to support projects that inform and educate the public about the critical role of animal research in furthering medical progress. The fellowship honors the late Dr. Michael Hare, a renowned board-certified laboratory animal veterinarian who dedicated his career to scientific and medical advancements and who was deeply committed to animal welfare and advocacy. Hey, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Lab Rat Chat. And as part of the upcoming Primer 2021 IACUC conference, which will be held April 14th to the 16th, we wanted to take some time today to highlight some of the sessions that anyone can experience and learn from. Anyone can go out and register for this conference, not just those in the field. And I highly recommend that you do go to the website, as you heard, to the introduction to this show, Primer, P-R-I-M-R dot org forward slash Librat chat to sign up for the conference and to look at the agenda. But we also today are lucky and fortunate enough to talk to Dr. Sally Thompson Iritani. I'm sorry if I pronounced your name incorrectly, but she is the interim director at the Washington National Primate Research Center. And she's also one of the chairs of the planning committee for this upcoming conference. So she has all the information that we need to know about this conference. And she also holds a wealth of information, I think, evident solely by her numerous degrees and certifications, including DVM, PhDs, certified IACUC professional, I believe, and many other very exciting and worthwhile certifications that she has, which I'll let her explain more so I don't continue to butcher them as I'm doing right now. So but anyways, I look forward to this conversation and to learning about what you do and how you contribute towards you know, strengthening the human-animal bond and just towards your contributions to the field of biomedical research. So welcome to the show. And if you could, just please discuss your background a little bit as we do with all our guests and you know what made you interested in veterinary medicine and research and just describe your journey to kind of get to where you are today. Yes, thank you so much. And just to start off, I really want to give a thank you to both of you. I want to thank you for doing this podcast. As I mentioned when I was talking with Danielle a little bit earlier, I really had listened to a few of these podcasts earlier, and then I went back and listened to a few more. And just I really want to give a shout out to the amazing job that you guys are doing in getting really good information out there for everyone. And I also really want to thank you for your support of the upcoming Primer Conference. It's so important that we have networking opportunities like this to share our information and to really talk with each other to learn best practices and to really figure out like what are you doing that I could be doing and you know and back and forth those exchanges are so important so just like I say starting out with that and then my journey that's such a great question so my journey and it's really interesting that you you know this is one of the first questions here because I was recently asked to talk about my journey and how I ended up where I'm at and so I really have had a little bit of time to think that through. And it's very interesting and probably something different than some other people's journeys. I think what's similar is that I knew from a really young age my affection and adoration for animals and wanting to be a veterinarian. And I think that that's really common for a lot of veterinarians. They wanted to go that route from a pretty young age. And also, though, at a young age, I had actually exposure to lab animals. One of my really good friends, when I think I was maybe eight years old, I was quite young, Her father was a researcher at the university and he would actually bring his, I know this would totally be unacceptable (laughs) in these ages, but he would actually bring his cages of mice home on the weekends 
so that we could take care of them. Oh, gosh. Yeah, he did not want them to be in the lab, and he, it was easier for him to have them at home so that he would actually bring them home. They, ha- they would have them on the kitchen counter, and we would get to take care of them, and they were the cutest little mice. It also was an experience for me to see how they could be taken good care of and how caring this particular researcher was towards his animals. That was kind of an early exposure to actually caring for animals that are used in research. And then as I got older, I call it kind of the tween ages. I can't remember exactly how old I was, but I do remember, you know, I was around 12 to 13 years old and it was a Sunday morning. And I keep trying to look for this picture because I actually saw a picture of a monkey being used in a neuroscience experiment. And it was a really clear explanation of how they were used in neuroscience and how they were used to understand how our brain works and how this happens. And because I knew I wanted to be taking care of animals in some way in my life, the first thing that occurred to me is like, well, who's caring for these animals while these researchers are doing this really important work? You know, those are some of my kind of early memories of thinking about like, so this work is really important, but who's taking care of the animals? So even though I think that people early on identify that they want to be a veterinarian, I don't know how many actually think about, I really want to be taking care of animals while it's still necessary to be using them in research. And I think that that was something that I identified actually quite early on in my kind of journey and path forward. Then when I went to college, I originally majored in mechanical engineering because I thought veterinary school was so hard to get into. You want to be sure you have a good fallback career, which is how I ended up in engineering. And I ended up working at the place where they took care of the cows that had the artificial hearts at the time. They were called the Jarvik Sevens. And these cows were being used to evaluate these artificial hearts so they could be used directly and go into humans. They were the exact same model that was going into humans at the time. There were so many aspects to that that were enlightening and important to me. You could see the direct translation of how they could benefit humans. I also had a really amazing experience with a veterinarian who was there taking care of these cows, who was the most compassionate person, one of the most compassionate people I've ever had the pleasure of working with, who would come down and really show how, you know, while using the animals in this research, he was really providing a lot of affection with them, a lot of interaction with them, and just showing that how that caring can happen while they were being used to do this really important work of developing those artificial parts. So then, I mean, I don't, I'm probably dragging this on a little bit too long. It's not my intention, but, but just wanted to give some of those early impression backgrounds and how much of an impression seeing people caring for animals at those early stages had on me. And then I went into veterinary school. And as I said, I had the impression early on of wanting to take care of the monkeys because of that kind of visual image of seeing how they were used to support neuroscience. So while I was in vet school, I did a few externships at primate centers and again, really had the pleasure of seeing how compassionate the people were that were taking care of the animals there and then how important the research was also. So I ended up doing my residency at the University of Washington and then kind of coincidentally, I didn't end up going to a primate center right away. I ended up going out into the biotech industry and I actually worked out in the biotech pharma industry for about 18 years, almost 20 years before coming back to academia. 
And then I worked in the Office of Animal Welfare initially when I came back to the University of Washington. And then there was an opportunity that opened up over at the Primate Center. So I ended up going and working in the Primate Center. And then our director retired. So now I'm in my current position as interim director. We are currently recruiting for a permanent director. But that's kind of the essence of my journey. But I think that, you know, for me, really emphasizing the amazing opportunities I had along my path to see the important work that people could do and how that kind of influenced me to hopefully pass those things on and really emphasize that going forward, how, you know, when we can take really good care of the animals and we can see the science and and really what's being discovered there can have such a big impact. Something funny that you said about the um, your friend's father who brought the mice home on weekends. When I was a little kid, I think most little kids asked for like, you know, a pet hamster or like a rabbit or a cat, something a little more normal. I begged my family to let me get pet mice. And my mom was just like, why on earth would you want (laughs) pet mice? I said, they're so cute. And she was very supportive of my strange interest. And I had pet mice, you know, for quite a while. And then, you know, you grow up and I didn't really know about the lab animal industry. And I got into college and it was sort of an eye-opening experience when you start learning about lab animal. And it was like, oh my gosh, I think I was meant to take care of mice. Like this is <laughs> this right. is where it all comes together. And now my mom jokes that it was worth all the squeamish to having mice in her house because I've I've turned it into a career. So something good came of it. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that's such a great yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I know we also want to talk about the upcoming Primer Conference, but I do want to hopefully touch a little more on your role at the Washington National Primate Research Center. We've had the director of the Tulane Center on our show previously, and he explained that as one of the seven National Primate Research Centers, their role and everything. So I'm kind of interested to learn a little bit more about the Washington Center. Yeah, thank you. And I, I mean, it's great that the Tulane Center is, is really spectacular too. So it's really nice that you were able to have them on and talking about their center. So our center is, they're all unique, but they're all very collaborative, which is also what I really love about the National Primate Research Center. So the Washington National Primate Research Center, it's smaller than the one in Tulane. We don't have an outdoor corral type of atmosphere for doing things or for breeding or anything. Our main colony is at the University of Washington in Seattle. So we don't have, like I say, those large corrals. We do have a breeding facility that's in Arizona that has outdoor access and stuff. Most of our work is done on the campus here. Our main animal that we breed is the pigtail macaque, which is the macaque in Nemestrina, which is different than what they have at some of the other centers, which is the rhesus macaque. We do actually house rhesus macaques, pigtail macaques, sinos, the other types of animals that they're needed for research projects. But for the actual breeding, we breed the pigtail macaque. So there's, you know, like I say, we're all kind of, the National Primary Research Centers are a network that supports all this research. And then we each kind of have some subspecialties to support the overall goals of the national centers. So our mission, obviously, I'm just going to kind of let you know, our center's mission is to provide an enriched environment to support outstanding biomedical research directed towards significant human health issues and non-human primate health, psychological well-being, and biology. And I actually read that just to be sure that it's, um, I know it sounds a little scripted, but it really is important that our mission is well-defined. 
We have four scientific divisions, and one of the divisions that we have that's unique is our Division of Global Programs. And our Division of Global Programs is, is actually an outreach program. We have a few investigators in that division that are actually working all over the world and looking at human-animal interaction in the environment. So it's a quite spectacular program, and it's really been supported because we, not only, you know, in doing research with non-human primates, but we really under, need to understand, even in their natural environments, what those relationships look like and how can we continue to figure out how to support those and, and to sustain our environment throughout this. So that's kind of a unique program that we have here at Washington. In addition, we have an infectious disease translational medicine program, which is looking at infectious diseases and obviously the one that's highlighted right now. And at the forefront of all of our brains is the COVID-19 pandemic. So we do some work with that. They do work on malaria, Zika virus, AIDS virus, all of those types of things, both developing vaccines, trying to understand their pathogenesis and trying to develop other therapies. We have a gene therapy regenerative medicine division, which is really has one of its projects looks at stem cell therapies for heart regeneration after heart attack. And they're also really having some really good success, which, which is translating well into the clinical setting. And then they do some gene therapy work. One of the projects they're doing is looking at sickle cell disease and they've developed some pretty interesting therapies that can be really globally incorporated down into the world some at a cost that's reasonable and with a production that's reasonable. So those are really important things and that we're really excited about. And then our neuroscience group, as I mentioned to you, one of the things that's fascinating to me is, is really knowing that neuroscience because I had it was one of my initial interests. And the neuroscience group looks a lot of our groups particularly look at aging and cognition. Um, they have some vision studies and look at stroke models. But the thing that fascinates me about our neuroscience is, you know, we're thinking about the brain. How does the brain work and everything? But, but these neuroscientists are getting down to even like the cellular level within the brain. What does this particular cell in this particular region of the brain, what does it do? And that to me is like, it's just been so fascinating to see how far we've advanced with neuroscience and then trying to understand these things. And the other thing is that, you know, it's one of those things like we don't know what we don't know. So with neuroscience, we don't always know the direct translation of what they find when they find out what that particular cell or neuron does. But the application is going to be something that maybe would be figured out later. But it's quite fascinating, like I say, just to see what they're able to find out there. I love when articles come out online or publications with just a new new aspect of what goes on in our heads. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Like I say, we don't know what we don't know. And there's a lot in there that is, is remaining hidden. Well, thanks for describing all of that. And I think it's really cool how, how well the all the National Primate Research Centers collaborate with each other. I know Dr. Bohm down in Tulane, when he talked to us, described that and how you guys you know share data and really communicate and collaborate with each other. And that's really the way to do it. So before we move into the conference still, I read in your online biography that you are both a certified compassion fatigue professional and a certified human-animal bond practitioner. I think those both are sound really interesting. Uh, we talk a lot on this show about the extremely high level of compassion that animal caretakers have, You know, not just the veterinarians, but everyone involved with the animals that they have for these animals. And how at times, you know, like the euthanasia of the lab animals at the conclusion of a study can be hard, although we know it's necessary at times. So could you just tell us a little bit about what those certifications that you hold mean and how you can apply them to help bringing both 
animals and the people working with them together in that sort of sense. And I, I don't even know if I'm explaining this right in what you do. I read about like the Dare to Care program and stuff like that as well. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that and I'll stop talking. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. And I think this is something that's really evolved for me, really learning. I think it was maybe 10 years ago when I was really learning about this culture of care that really embodies everything that we're talking about. Like we all know it's there, but really then how do we put a label around it and make sure that it's well-defined. And I think that's how I ended up really looking into these compassion fatigue programs and certifications. And interesting thing about them is like the certified compassion fatigue professional. The training is really because this originally, you know, the whole concept of compassion fatigue developed from the nursing field. That training is really for how to deal with people. So I think that that's something that was really interesting for people who are caring for people. So it's an interesting translation for sure, because talking about that hearing, but there's a lot of similarities between people caring for people and who, you know, have illnesses, chronic illnesses and hospice care, things like that, and people caring for animals. So it is very translatable. And I found that training just in thinking about how to help people who might be experiencing challenges with their work through those. And so we've actually even tried to kind of turn around how we look at this in the last, particularly like the last three to four years. Like we originally were developing a compassion fatigue program to help people deal with compassion fatigue as they were struggling with euthanasia events or struggling with understanding, you know, conceptually about the work that they were doing and, and supporting. And we're really turned that around to compassion resiliency. And I think that that really embodies what we're trying to do. We're trying to support people, let them know it's okay to care. It's okay to, to have these feelings and these emotions and we can help each other through it. And so that's kind of the, the concept also around these certifications and training. Now, the interesting thing with the human animal bond training is that's actually through the AVMA. So that's made primarily for practitioners who work in veterinary clinics and are dealing with their clients and their patients and their client-patient relationship, which I had a lot of different experiences with. And that client-patient relationship is can be, you know, so it, it is, it's so strong for most people and learning how then to help people through that and making decisions about their pet care is something that has to be thought about and has a lot of translatability because as we're thinking about those, you know, pet care and when people get attached to the animal, maybe a research animal and thinking about how do we provide the best care for them and how do we make, you know, endpoint decisions, end of life decisions, and how do those translate? And our Dare to Care program, and I think this would be worthy of its whole own podcast, so I'm sure you know that. And if you want to do that, I can definitely hook you up with the right people because it needs its own attention. And I will tell you that in developing that, I'm kind of the executive sponsor and I sponsor it and I support it, but it's driven by the people who are doing the work and it's driven by what their needs are. So they meet regularly. I think they meet every two weeks to try to figure out what do they need to do to support our staff and to support each other. That's really how these need to be developed because, you know, some of us, like I'm to a point where I don't actually interact directly with the animals as much as I used to, which is just the nature of my evolution of my career. But the people who are still interacting regularly with the animals are the people that need, that are getting together and talking about this and figuring out how to support one another. And I think that's such an important part of this project. You know, some of the things is, you know, you talked about endpoints and if we do have to euthanize an animal, one of the things we found is like people just want some warning of when that's going to happen. 
So we instituted some practices so that we could get that information to people to make sure if it's possible. Now, as we know, it's not always possible if, it, if it's, you know, if it's a humane endpoint for some reason. But if it's a scheduled endpoint, we can definitely have the time to let people prepare for that and to let them work through that. So those are some of the big things that we identified out of that that were really important. But like I say, that that program deserves a platform all its own and it's really spectacular. And it does have its own website, which isn't open to people to look at at any time or to contact us because we feel like it's so important to support everyone throughout our industry and to provide those self-care things that we can all do. But the biggest thing for self-care is actually a supportive network. So really thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. We could put a link and then Sally, even right now, if you do you know the website at the top of your head or an email that someone, if they're listening, they could jot down if they're interested and in, if they need to, if they want to reach out or ask questions or you know, it's linked on my signature and I don't want to give the wrong. That's um, fine. Yeah. So let, let's send it out. I just don't, it's, it is D2C and, but I just can't remember what actually is in front of us. So let's, um, you know, I would prefer that if we put the exact link because I don't yes, want to mislead definitely. somebody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's fair. And I mean, I think if you probably Google dare to care or the D2C program or whatnot, I'm sure something will come up. We'll include it in our notes at the end as well. Yeah. If you do D2C at University of Washington, it comes up. So onto the main topic that we wanted to talk about today. I appreciate all the other information because that's really um, good stuff to know about also. But we do want to talk about the Primer IACUC conference. And for those who don't know, Primer is public responsibility in medicine and research. And hopefully by now you've heard us say IACUC a million times, but it's Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. So if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about this conference, what they can expect, what some of the topics are, and what they would benefit if they're able to register and attend. Yeah, so this is great. And like I say, thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to talk about this upcoming conference, because this is honestly like one of the most spectacular networking conferences I think that anybody can have the pleasure of participating in. And even virtually, it's equally as informative and and the opportunities for networking really worked out well last year. So I anticipate they should work out well again this year. They're so organized putting this together. So first off, I just kind of wanted to let everyone know the structure of this conference. There is a keynote, they have panels, they have workshops, they have virtual roundtables, and they have breakout sessions. So that's the one thing I'll have to tell you when I first started going to the Permanent Conference, there's just so much amazing content. It's hard to make it to everything that, that you want to go to, which is also the benefit of having it online is then you can go back and check some things out. But the keynote this year is Liz Neely from Luminal Creations, and she is going to talk about like a sense-making approach to difficult conversations about animal research. And I think that that's just one you don't want to miss because learning about how we talk about our work and how can we talk about our work in a way that's interpretable to a lot of different people is so important. So that's going to be our keynote talk, and it's on the first day. The panels I'm equally as enthusiastic about because our panels are really hitting on hot topics this year. And one of the, the first panels is going to be talking about racism and privilege within our animal research programs. That is so timely and important, right? Like that's essential that we talk about how's that impacting our daily work. We all understand the impact across the global impact of that, but understanding then how it's impacting us in our daily work, I think is really critical. 
The other one is talking about the COVID-19 and its impacts on science communication and outreach. And it's actually one that I noticed you have in your ad talking about Priminar because AMP's own Jim Newman is going to be helping on talking on this panel. And I should have mentioned the panels are great because there's a few speakers giving their perspective. So when you have a few speakers giving their perspective, I really appreciate that because it it adds a little bit of, of depth and breadth to it. The other panel is on One Health and the Intersection Between Laboratory Animal Research and Wildlife Research. So it's another thing that we're, you know, we're grappling with right now, like what's, you know, how are human-animal interactions in the wild influencing us and figuring out how did we end up in this pandemic and what are some things that we need to be thinking about and how are those impacting us? So I think those panels are going to be spectacular. And the panels run when they're, you know, without conflict with other things running in parallel. So that's really nice. They're really, when it's in person, those are things that everyone can attend. There's some great workshops and the workshops are meant to be kind of the interactive workshops and learning opportunities. You know, just basically like on IACUC fundamentals effective communications, humanian points, you know, ICIC leaderships, all sorts of different opportunities with workshops, which also provide a lot of opportunity for networking and for hearing from some experts in the field, like on how are they doing this? How are they putting their ICICs together and working across their institutions or their company to have really strong working relationships from the ICIC perspective? The virtual roundtables, which I mentioned, are the networking opportunities where you can ask somebody, like if you're a ICIC chair and you want to see, like, how are other people who are chairs of their ICIC dealing with these situations? Then you can call into one of those and just kind of have some of those discussions and ask them some questions about how they may be dealing with things. And those, I think those are really beneficial, finding some people in your similar situations because of that opportunity for information sharing. One of the sessions that I, I saw on the agenda that I'm very interested about is um, post-approval monitoring in the COVID era, because we kind of talked about this in our News Bite episode. But, you know, as soon as COVID hit, you can't really do in-person stuff, but you still have to have an eye on what's going on in the research facility. So I'm interested to see how other places have gone to record review, uh, Zoom, virtual post-approval monitoring, things like that. So that's one that stood out to me. Yeah, I so agree with you. Learning how to do that and learning how our community has adapted is so interesting. And I really agree with you. That was really interesting. As I had mentioned, some of the breakout sessions actually run in parallel. And the advantage of the virtual is that you can listen to some of them afterwards if you can, because obviously you can't be in more than one place. You could try to have three separate Zooms set up on your computer, different computers, <laughs> but it might be hard to concentrate. <laughs> you know, there's some about like career pathways in the three R's. I think those will be really interesting. One of them that stuck out to me too, as you were just talking about with the PAN planning, was also about the resiliency and contingency planning. And they're going to talk about lessons learned from wildfires, floods, and the pandemic. So really, you know, that one I think is going to be really interesting. They have somebody from the Primate Center, the Caribbean Primate Center, who had the big hurricane and the aftermath of that talking. And those wildfires that they had in California this last year and talking about how they did with those. So I think some of those will be very interesting also. There's also federal agency updates, which are always essential, like what's happening at that level. I just wanted to mention also, I think the, the nice thing about the Primer Conference is that it covers not just our traditional lab animals. We also, you know, cover the agricultural animals and wildlife and all of those other things, which some people feel like when they have to deal with those, like they might be the only one dealing with it. So it's so nice to come into a larger community where you find some people who are having similar experiences. Yeah, absolutely. 
There's also a live, maybe you mentioned it and I missed it. There's also a live iCook meeting that people could tune into or like see, and you can get to see kind of how an iCook operates and runs. Is that right? Yeah, no, you're totally right. And I hadn't mentioned that yet. So thank you so much for bringing it up. The virtual iCook, basically, it is a a mock iCook and they have, you know, there's members from the community that serve those roles in their iCooks at their institution or their company. And they kind of have some mock iCook meetings, which are to see how they grapple with some of the common things that iCook or some of the uncommon things that I could, you know, has to deliberate on. And one of the other things I like about that is that the ICIC deliberates and then they have the federal agencies that there, they have OLA and USDA and ALAC who will also give their interpretation of where the ICIC got to with their deliberations. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah, I was trying to tie it into, I mean, members of the general public that may not be involved in this field, if they were to attend this conference or maybe attend just one session. We talk a lot about on the show about the iCook. And I just think it's so important for people if they could get like a real look at how an iCook deliberates and comes to a conclusion on a protocol and the level of detail that they go through when reviewing a protocol with their fine tooth comb. And I just think it's important. I don't think everyone realizes even politicians and legislators out there that are writing legislation for animal research that may not know how iCooks operate. You know, it's just so many people I think could benefit from being able to observe and listen in on a on a live, although mock iCook meeting. So I think that one's really good. I agree with you. I think it is it is this kind of a window into they do try to model these after some kind of real life scenarios. So I think that even though it's a mock iCook, they do model them off real life scenarios that people have grappled with at their institutions. So they anonymize it for good reason. You know, there could be proprietary information or something, but I do think it's a great window into the functions of the iCook. And if people, like you say, really are curious, what does the iCook do? How does it function? It's a fantastic opportunity to see that. Yeah. So next, I was going to ask you what you're most excited about for this conference, but it sounds like you're excited (laughs) about all of it. So I don't know if you have something in particular that you're most excited about and that you'd want to mention, or we could just move on and continue on with the other questions. I think you had a good read on that. I'm super excited about everything. So funny though, when I was, when you were bringing that up and, and I was looking kind of at some of the things that I had written down that I want to be sure not to miss. And some people might think it's kind of a funny one, but, but one that stuck out to me was there's really a nice talk on reduction in statistics. That's one that I don't want to miss that maybe people would be like, hmm, you know, <laughs> but I think really also it's such an important topic talking about where statistics comes into our role, that that was one that kind of stood out to me as one that I want to be sure not to miss. So So since we know this is going to be virtual and, you know, the talks are pre-recorded, if you're unable to attend during that April 14th to 16th window, how long will these be available to view? Can you view them at a later date? What sort of flexibility do we have here? Yeah, so you can register and just view them virtually, but you have 30 days. So from the time you register to watch them all, you have 30 days. So I think it's just being really thoughtful about how you're going to do that. And then there is, even after the conference, you could register and watch it for 30 days, but that only goes for a certain amount of time. It's not indefinite, like they're not going to be available forever for you to watch for 30 days, but there is some time span where you can register and then you have 30 days to watch the content. All right, perfect. Well, hopefully everybody got you know, some great information from all of that. And we'll have the links to where you can register. And if you have questions, you can, there'll be contacts on there as well for you to reach out to and contact the appropriate people. 
So this next question kind of goes in line with maybe the keynote speaker and how to talk about animal research. And we've always asked all of our guests how they describe what they say to people when they're asked what they do for a living. When you're asked that, do you bring up the animal research component when describing what you do? And if so, what are people's reactions? And how do you maybe adjust what you're saying based upon those reactions? And how do you handle it in a professional sort of way so that people can maybe learn from that and use that in their own life when they're asked these questions? Yeah. And I think that this is something that I tell people kind of, and it is, you know, I know there's a lot, you know, I like, what's my why? For myself, my why is it constantly evolving and it's really driven by what's going on in my world at the time. And, you know, if I were to tell people today, you know, what's my why and why is it so important to me that we do animal research? And it's, I'm in such a fortunate position that my why right now is because my family is healthy. My mom is 88 years old. I mean, when she, the doctor called her almost 90, she's like, that's her new name, you know? So, so I always call her almost 90, but. I think about today, my why is because everybody's healthy in my family, and that's so important. But I just wanted to quickly relay a couple of years ago, I had a different why. And that was because three people I knew kind of within this, within a couple month time span got diagnosed with terminal cancer. One was a pancreatic cancer and two were colon cancer. They were young, middle-aged people that just kind of got that I mean, I hate to say it, but it's it, a death sentence given to them. And they knew that there was no treatment for their cancer at that time. And that was really impactful for me at that point in time to realize like all the work I'd done in biotech and we had been working on therapies for that and I couldn't do anything. One of them, I tried getting on a clinical trial, but unfortunately his cancer had progressed too far and we couldn't get him on the clinical trial, even though I had great contacts that would have, you know, even two weeks earlier, it could have potentially been helpful. So those things, you know, when I think about those, I sometimes will go into those stories, but I think one thing that I also tell people is that I try to pay attention to my mood and what I'm feeling about the environment at the time. And I always like to tell people that if you're just not in the mood and you don't feel like it, it's okay. And to be kind of gracious with yourself and let yourself talk about it when you're in the right environment to talk about it and you feel comfortable. But if you're feeling vulnerable and you just, at that point in time, it's not the right space for you, I think that's okay too. (laughs) So that's just something, you know, that I wanted to kind of mention that, you know, to be really nice to yourself. We're talking so much about outreach and transparency and it is so important. But also if somebody asks you what you do and it's just not the right time for you, just give yourself some grace. That's a very good perspective. I kind of like that take on it to give yourself some grace and space to answer when it's right. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to mention, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but I actually, particularly this last year, I've had a lot of extremist activity directed at me directly. And, you know, they even came to my house and they sent letters to all my neighbors and all this stuff. And I just, one thing I want to share with anybody listening is that I got an outpouring of support from everybody in my neighborhood people who just said, you know, we are here to support you. We want you to feel safe. This is your neighborhood where you live. And, you know, they want to hear about what we were doing and they want to find out how they can support us. So I just wanted to be sure to mention that to people. So, cause I know how scary it is and I know how vulnerable we feel. And it was one of the most vulnerable points in my life when, you know, I heard that they're going to come to my house and, and stand in front of my house, but it, was also one of the most enriching experiences of my life to see all my neighbors come out and stand in my yard with me. So I just want to make sure, you know, people know that people are smart out there 
people understand how important our work is. If you feel comfortable and you can open up to them, that usually the response is positive. And if you get a negative response, you know, then give me a call. We'll talk it out or give somebody a call that you trust and, and talk it out. So. That's just, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. That's, um, definitely something that plays in the back of my head. I have not been affected by it, but I think everyone in this industry has that little tiny voice, you know, with the what ifs and the, you know. Yeah, most definitely. But it's awesome. You got so much support. And I know that's what, I mean, especially that's the important part. I mean, your community and then people and then organizations like Americans for Medical Progress. I mean, they're out there supporting people. And whenever I hear this too, it makes me so mad because usually the researchers or veterinarians or, animal caretakers, technicians, vet techs, whoever's being affected, they don't have a chance necessarily to tell their side of the story. So, I mean, I also want to offer too, if anyone's affected or being targeted and you want to come on our show and talk about, you know, your side of the story and how you're being targeted or just what you do for a living and how compassionate you are for your work and how it's not right that these organizations are targeting people that have literally dedicated their entire lives to ensuring animal well-being and advancement of medicine for both humans and animals are targeted in this manner. It's just not, it's unfair. And I think more and more people are standing up and like in your case, you know, supporting you. And so, I mean, we're here too, as I think Danielle would agree, we'll, we'll talk to anybody and <laughs> oh, yeah. let you tell your side of the side <laughs> yep. of the story and get that out there as much as we can as well to help support you. So definitely tough topic, but any final thoughts or anything um, that you want to bring up while we still have you? I think that's kind of the main, we've touched on most of the main things we wanted to talk about, but anything else regarding the conference or use of animals and research that you want to mention? Well, I just want to say how much I appreciate you really bringing up how essential like organizations like AMP and, you know, we have our local one here, uh, Northwest Association for Biomedical Research, because they were my kind of my posse that helped me through my personal experience here. And without them, I mean, and without organizations and without podcasts like yours, it would be so much more difficult. So I really just want to say how grateful I am to all of you for, you know, your support and doing your great work to get the word out. So thank you, my eternal gratitude, and just really appreciate all of that. Yeah, thank you. And again, we appreciate your time today. You have great perspective on, you know, this field and on life in general. I think we can all learn from. And so thanks for sharing your insight. If there's nothing else, I'll just tell all of our listeners to make sure you rate and review our show wherever you can rate and review podcasts. Email us. Like I said, if you have any questions, concerns, if you're being targeted for any reason, for anything, if you just want chat, librachat at gmail.com. That's what we're here for. And follow us on social media. And Sally, thank you for your time. And everyone, enjoy the rest of your week. And we'll talk to you guys later. Bye, everyone. Bye.